This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater. Slater's America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. We have um, maybe six to eight hours of content to get to today. Uh, so uh, we got three hours to do it. Let's get right at it. New poll. You may have seen it. A people, seven in 10 people, seven in 10, say that the country is losing uh, its identity. America is losing its identity. All right, let's break this down. Uh, first, we got to be careful interpreting uh, this poll because different people, two different people can answer the same way for completely different reasons. Not, not even different reasons, totally opposite reasons. Right? So you have two people say, yes, we're losing our identity for opposite reasons. So how do you reconcile that? So, so Republicans uh, in this poll, they say that Republicans think that the culture is grounded in Christian beliefs and the traditions of early European immigrants. Okay? So that's Republicans think that's our culture. Democrats, though, think the culture is rooted in the the combining of of many different cultures from around the world and accepting the huddled masses of um, you know so their identity is conservatives' identity is more in like our founding and the Democrats' identity they think our country is more like the 1920s of mass migration right so if the AP asks a Democrat is America losing its identity they'll say yes because they don't think we're bringing in enough immigrants today. And if you ask a Republican, are we losing our identity? They'll say yes, but because they think we're bringing in too many immigrants. Right? So you get two different people answering the same way for opposite reasons. Are we losing our identity because we're just too many immigrants? Or are we losing our identity because there's too few immigrants? So they both say yes, we're losing our identity, but for opposite reasons. And then you put them in the same category as if they both agree. And they don't. So that's a one tricky part uh, of this poll. But the real problem with this poll is that it skips over a couple things. The question is, are we losing our identity? But that skips over the important question of what is our identity? What is our identity today? And then there's also the question of what do we want our identity to be? But even that skips over an important question, which is why is it even important 
to have an identity, right? So do you see the progression of, of like, first and foremost, why is it even important to have an identity? And then what is our identity? And then are we losing it? And then what identity do we want to have? So there's a lot of questions there. And this AP poll goes right to the, the third and, and doesn't get to the first. So let's, let's talk about the first one. It's the foundation, right? Why is it important to have an identity? So I want to tell the story of uh, Xenophon. Xenophon was uh, around 400 BC. He was a student to Socrates. So we got a few characters in this story. Uh, we have the Persian king Xerxes. Right, so that's, uh, if you've seen the movie 300, uh, that, that's the, you know, the Persian king who attacked the Spartans. Right? Uh, it's also the Persian king in the book of Esther in the Bible. So his son, his third son, is, is, his name is Ataxerxes. Like, attaboy, Ataxerxes. His son is Ataxerxes II. All right, so you have, so this is the grandson of Xerxes, Ataxerxes II. He's the king of Persia. His younger brother is named Cyrus. So Cyrus is recruiting uh, some paid soldiers to fight a far-off battle. And they, he, uh, Cyrus reaches out to the Greeks. Now, the Greeks and the Persians, they hate each other. But it's been a while since the Greeks have fought anybody. And the Greeks have other enemies. So they're like, ah, okay, sure. We'll join this army. So Xenophon is asked to join this you know, paid military. And Xenophon, meh, bit of a wimp. Right? <laughs> kind of, he lived off his dad's inheritance had no desire to fight. You know, he's a student of uh, Socrates. He's a thinker, not a fighter. Uh, but he's like, eh, all right, I'll go and I'll write a book about it. <laughs> right? So he, even then he doesn't want to fight, but he's like, all right, I'll go. It'll be an adventure or whatever. So he joins this, this military. 10,000 Greek soldiers come together, join Cyrus's army to go off and kill some bad guys. So they all go to, uh, you know, the capital, the Persian empire, wherever they meet up with Cyrus. And Cyrus says, all right, guys, change of plans. Uh, what we're really going to do here is overthrow my brother. Right? We're going to overthrow Ataxerxes II, my, my big brother. So the Greeks are like, oh, come on. We didn't come out here to be a part of an overthrow. Like that. Uh, but Cyrus gave him a bunch more money. And then the Greeks were like, okay, fine. So we got this big rebellion going on. And it really didn't turn much into a big one because Cyrus was killed really quick by his brother. And that was it. But now we got all these Greeks. Right, we got ten thousand Greeks hanging out in the Persian Empire. Like, uh, I, we we didn't even mean to be here. Sorry. So, Ataxerxes shows them mercy, and he says, "All right, no hard feelings, guys. Why don't you just go home? Go back to Greece. It's fine." And the guy's like, "Uh, we don't even know how to get home." So, Ataxerxes says, "Oh, okay, my guys will lead you back home. Okay, they'll, they'll lead you on the way through the mountains and everything. We'll get you back home." So the Greeks are like, oh, okay, good. So they start marching home. It's 1,500 miles away, I should say. So it'd be like marching halfway across the country. So they march and they march. It's taking a long time. And then the Persian leaders in the middle, they're in, the, in between, right, where they're going. And the Persian leaders kill all the Greek leaders. Just behead them right there. Kill them all. So the whole thing was a trick. It was a trick by Ataxerxes to get the Greeks somewhere very far away in the middle of nowhere. So they couldn't fight. They couldn't hide. They couldn't run. And the Persians would just kill them when they least expected it. That, that was the whole. So Ataxerxes, he's like, I can either kill you now or I'm going to kill you when you can't fight back. So, oh yeah, why don't you guys go home? Right? He pretended to be nice. So uh, 
the Persians kill the Greek leaders. The men in the Greek camp, they find out about this and they're freaking out. They're terrified, right? They're doomed. They're dead. There's nothing they can do. Surrounded. What are they going to do? So Xenophon looks at this and he's like, whoa, whoa. Everyone's being super lame here. He steps to the plate. He actually has a dream. Zeus is in it and all this stuff. But he wakes up and he realizes that death staring them all in the face. They're all going to die. And all they're doing is whining about it. There's moaning and whining and what was me and all this stuff. And he's like, whoa, 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 what are we doing here? He said, we got we to we figure this out. So Xenophon is like, well, guys, we're Greeks. We are the tough, glorious Greeks. Why are you being so pathetic? Xenophon realized they were pathetic because they forgot who they are. They forgot their identity. They forgot their Greeks. These were men who joined the fight for money rather than for purpose or for a cause. And they were unable to determine who was their friend or their enemy, right? I mean, they joined up with their enemies, the Persians. So they were totally lost, not only in the wilderness, but they were just lost of purpose, lost of direction. They completely lost. They had no idea who they were or what they were doing. Now, Xenophon was not a military genius, but he was good at motivating the guys. So he concentrated their focus on the enemy, the Persians. And he went on this long rant about how uh, how evil the Persians are. And, and he thought that if he got all the Greek soldiers angry, that uh, that anger would motivate them to fight back. Right? So he characterized the, the Persians as evil. And he says, we're Greeks. We're the polar opposite of them. And what this did is it gave men needed direction and purpose and clarity. He made it a battle between good and evil. I want to quote one quote here from Xenophon. Um, he was talking about how sad his, the Greek men were. And he said, in such a state, I don't know what you could do with them. But if someone could turn their minds from wandering, or excuse me, from wondering what will happen to them and make them wonder instead what they could do, they'll be much more cheerful, right? So instead of just being, oh, no, we're going to die, being anxious and all that, wondering like what's going to, they're thinking, oh, man, what, what can we, what can we do to help the situation instead? He said, I'm sure that it's not numbers or strength that brings victory in war, but whichever army goes in battle stronger in soul. Again, purpose, direction, clarity. Right? Whichever army goes into, into battle stronger in soul, then the enemies cannot withstand them. So they got fired up, were motivated, were able to kill the Persian leaders. They were able to escape and, and outlast the Persians for a couple of weeks until they were able to get home and survive. So a couple of life lessons, obviously. A shift in perspective is everything. Don't get lost about who your enemy is. Right? They never should have joined up with the Persians in the first place. And, and don't get lost about who you are. They lost their identity. They, they forgot they were Greeks. They forgot what that meant. And then also don't be passive and wait for bad things to happen. Take control. But you can't do that if you can't figure out your reason for even living like these Greeks couldn't for a time. So this brings us back to our country, right? So we got seven in 10 Americans say we're losing our identity. But I don't think we can even agree on what our identity is anymore. We forgot what it means even to be an American. Right? Now, I think it's even worse than we can't agree on what our identity is. I don't think people even think it's important to have an identity. Right? Now, I know there's 330 million Americans and it's got how are we going to have a common purpose you know, with that many people, but I mean, we can at least we have something and 70% of people agree on a common purpose. 
And if we don't, then nothing meaningful can ever happen. We're just going to wander. If we Listen, if we don't have a common identity, we're going to wander. We're going to be easily deceived. We're going to be tricked and manipulated, either by, by leaders in our country or, or around the world. When you lack purpose, you're out of control. As Donald Trump says, my favorite insult that Donald Trump ever gave was against Whoopi Goldberg. And he said, she's in total free fall. I love that insult. That's the best insult because it implies uh, helplessness, right? You, you get this imagery. You get imagery, total free fall, someone falling off a building, right? So you get this imagery of, of helplessness and inevitable death, right? Inevitable demise. There's not this, you're in total free fall. If you lack purpose, you're in total free fall. So we better realize that it's important to have an identity. First things first. Then we better be able to to identify and define our identity. Because if we don't, we'll never even know whether we lost it or not. So the seven to 10 people are saying we lost it. I bet most of those people don't even know what it is. That's a problem. 1-888-933-93. I hope that story makes sense about how important it is to have an identity. Otherwise, you will lose yourself. And then you'll be manipulated and controlled if you don't know who you are as a person, as an individual, as an organization, as a company, as a church, and as a country. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter and search for us on Facebook as well. Mike Slater, show the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. This is Mike Slater. So I just finished this book called The uh, The Lost Island. And it's about a crew of five men who get shipwrecked on uh, an island off the coast of New Zealand. It's about 250 miles, uh, Auckland Island. It's about 250 miles off the coast of New Zealand. And uh, this is 18, it's around the Civil War, 1860s, something like that. So they survive there for almost two years. Right during the winters and everything. But at the same time, on the other side of the island is another shipwrecked crew. So, so you have this cool case study of two shipwrecked crews on the same island at the same time. So what goes down? So the first crew, the five guys, 
they're there much longer. They stick together. They work together. They have a, uh, a common purpose. Obviously, big picture, their common purpose is to get out alive. But even on a day-to-day basis, right? Basic tasks have to get accomplished, right? They have many goals every single day. We're going to build a shelter. We're going to kill these seals to eat, et cetera, et cetera. They divvy up the tasks. No one complains. They have school at night, right? So each of the five guys excels at something and they would alternate between teacher and student every night. So the guy from Portugal, they were all from different countries too. The guy from Portugal would teach Portuguese one night and then you know the captain, the other guy would teach math, right? So he'd be the teacher for the night and they would just rotate around and they all did this just to stay busy and to keep the mind engaged. Isn't that awesome? Like no one cared about Portuguese, but they're like, well, we got we to gotta stay busy and we got to stay together. And they had Bible studies every night as well. Now, don't get me wrong. It was a miserable existence, right? They were depressed and bitter cold and yeah, below zero and pouring rain and snow. And it was awful. And there was times when there were no seals and they're about to starve to death. And it was super desperate. So it wasn't like, oh, this is great. We're vacationing on the island. But they survived. Meanwhile, on the other side of the island, total chaos. Like from, from the moment there was the shipwreck, no leadership, no mission, no purpose. It was every man for himself. And this other crew even found remains of an abandoned settlement. So there was, there was a, 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 like an abandoned house that they lived in and they could start a fire and there were, there was shelter there. So they're given much more than the other crew. And it was a total gong show. Everyone went their own ways. Everyone was bitter to the next guy. No one was in charge. People would just go off and wandering in search of food for themselves. They'd die on the way. One guy climbed a mountain to get a better view, but he did it all by himself because he's like, no one wants to go with me. So he just went. He died on the way down. I think 23 people landed on the island and three survived. There was one night, maybe there were like 10 guys left. And, and one of the guys says, all right, everyone, let's draw straws. <laughs> They're like, huh? Draw straws for what? And he goes, the short straw dies first so that the rest of us can eat him. And the other guys are like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> what? So now everyone's super paranoid that they're going to kill each other and eat each other. And they did end up eating a guy who died too, right? So they're eating a cannibalism they've resorted to. And those three, they only got rescued by chance. A ship happened to be passing by. The, the other crew, the crew of five, they forged blacksmithing tools and made a boat and then took, a, I think, a six-night boat journey in this rickety old boat across the way to uh, New Zealand and, and were able to, to get help and then come back and find the guys. And it's incredible. So why the difference? Leadership. Big picture, right? Uh, purpose. It was both. It was macro and micro, right? They had big picture purpose and then they had the, the day-to-day purpose as well. So to bring it to our country, what's our purpose? I don't think we know that anymore, right? I don't, I don't think we can all agree on that. We can't articulate that. I think one major problem is, um, one major reason for that is cultural, yes, but also our schools, right? I don't think it's, our schools aren't taught. In, you know, it's so funny because it's like, oh, common core, we're all going to learn the same, everything. And I've, we don't even learn the same, even as it is, we don't learn the same values for our country. 
It's amazing. So I think Trump is is clear on on what we're doing, right? That's his whole America first approach, which is spot on. But I wonder, and, and, and maybe I'm just not paying enough attention to it. Maybe I'm missing it. But is he doing the, this is who we are? Is he doing enough of this is our identity? Maybe he is, right? Maybe I'm just missing it. So I'm going to keep a better ear out for it. But I think that's essential to any successful movement. Who are we? Not just what are we going to do? That's easy. And you rally people around what we're going to do. Okay. But if people don't have a common identity, then I don't think that unity is going to be lasting, right? one 888 Take your call next. I want to come back with um, a story from 60 Minutes last week about uh, the woman running for president of France. Their election is April something, April 20-something. Um, so coming up here in a little bit. And there's, uh, you know, Marie Le Pen is like the Trump of France. And she was did an interview with 60 Minutes the other day, and it was all about this. It was all about identity. Th- this is their big election, right? This is the thing about, this is the big topic in their election in France, is who are we? I'm not kidding. Like, who are we as Frenchmen and French women? What's the, what, what does it mean to be French? Because the people there feel very, in a very acute way, that uh, acute way, that they're losing their identity. And they don't like it. And they think Le Pen is the person to, to help them get it back. Very fascinating. So we'll play a little bit of her interview coming up next. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Check us out on Facebook, of course, as well. Mike Slater, show the plays. Radio Network, spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. It's Slater. Let's play this real quick. Um, again, so we're talking about this AP poll. Seven in 10 Americans think we are losing our identity, uh, which again is a strange poll because someone can say we're losing identity because, for instance, we're taking in too many immigrants and someone can say we're losing identity because uh, we're not taking in enough immigrants. So those two people agree, but for opposite reasons. Same thing uh, with approval ratings. This happens a lot. Um, you know, you'll have... Some people say, I don't approve of Barack Obama because he hasn't lowered taxes. And then someone else will say, I don't approve of Barack Obama because he hasn't raised taxes enough. So it's, so these two people agree that they don't like Obama, but for opposite reasons. Right? He's not progressive enough, or he's way too progressive. So polls like that are kind of uh, meaningless. But it's also about, uh, you know, we, we got to go before that. Forget about, losing, are we losing our identity? What is our identity? And why is it even important to have an identity? And it's funny because I think we're we're not really having this conversation in America, um, but they are in Europe. Maybe because the it's more I used the word earlier acute, acute. I don't really like that word, but it's more um, it's more in your face, right? The losing of their identity because of the uh, migrant crisis that they have over there. So uh, I want to play this uh, quick interview here. This is uh, well, a part of this interview from sixty minutes last week. Marine Le Pen. She is running for president of France. The election is April 23rd. 
she is essentially the Trump of France. Right, so, so, I mean, <laughs> where no one would ever think she would win, but after Brexit and after Trump, uh, now everyone's like, oh, I think, I think she might. So here she is talking about the French uh, identity. Her country. So how do you explain what is happening? Did leaders go too far? Yes, of course they've gone too far. Globalization has become an ideology with no constraints. And now nations are forcing themselves back into the debate. Nations with borders we control, with people that we listen to, with real economies, not Wall Street economies, but rather factories and farmers. And this goes against unregulated globalization, a wild, savage globalization. Savage globalization. Yes, savage, of course. Wild globalization has benefited some, but it's been a catastrophe for most. A catastrophe, she says, which has ravaged the French economy as jobs have faded away and immigrants have flooded in. Many of them Muslim immigrants from North Africa, who Le Pen says are draining resources, rejecting French values, and transforming the culture. One of the concerns of many of your supporters is that immigration, current immigration, is changing the character of France. It's changing the spirit of the country. It's because of this massive immigration, and more in some places. France's image has undeniably changed. There are a number of neighborhoods where you are no longer living a French life. That's undeniable. France is still a country of bistros and fine Bordeaux, baguettes and bucolic churches. But immigrants now make up 12% of the population. They brought with them new beliefs and customs. Couscous and kebabs, headscarves, and an outfit called the burkini. A full-body swimsuit for Muslim women has become the latest flashpoint in a raging culture war. We were surprised at just how far Marine Le Pen was willing to go to enforce assimilation. France isn't burkinis on the beach. France is Bridget Bardot. That's France. Should Muslim people be allowed to wear headscarves? No, I'm opposed to wearing headscarves in public places. That's not France. There's something I just don't understand. The people who come to France. Why would they want to change France? To live in France the same way they lived back home? Her views go to the heart of a debate that's been raging in the country for decades over what it means to be French and who's responsible for the failure of some immigrants to become fully integrated into French society. Massive immigration brings with it cultures that are sometimes in contradiction with our values. There are many people in France who view your party as anti-Islamic, anti-Muslim. I'm not waging a religious war. It's clear that in France, everyone has the right to practice their religion, to worship as they choose. My war is against Islamic fundamentalism. Le Pen blames... When Donald Trump says, make America great again, are you saying, make France great again? Well, yes, of course. I've been saying that for many years. We are a great nation, which has a lot to offer to the world. But to offer something to the world, France has to remain France. Mm. Uh, sorry about the intro music playing there. We, I figured the clip's good enough, the intro music good enough, might as well keep it going. Um, so there's so much good stuff there, but right? This is exactly what we're talking about. And I love what she said. She says, why would someone want to come to France? And you've said this a million times. I know you've thought this. Why would someone want to come to France and then change it to be more like the country they came from? That doesn't make any sense. 
last week we talked about uh, globalism versus nationalism. And it's a simple question that I would like to ask the globalist in France or the globalist here in America. What part of Yemen's culture do you want to come to your country? What part of Somalian society do you want to come to America? So France is wrestling with this question outwardly. I think we're wrestling with it, but not out loud or not specifically enough. You know, we talk about immigration and stuff, but I don't think we really talk about identity. We talk about culture and we talk politics, but I don't think people talk identity. Who are we? Why, 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 who do we want to be? And if you don't ask those questions, you're never going to get to where you want to go. Can we take, let's take a, I want to take an early break here, guys, if we can, I want to come back. I got an example of a little hypocrisy on this um, from progressives. And then a really, really interesting article from the Washington Post about immigration, but not every time you read an immigration article, it's about uh, it's from the perspective of immigrants here. But this article is from the perspective of immigrants in Mexico or not even immigrants, people deported out of America into Mexico. And it's from their perspective. And it's hilarious. Uh, what can be funny about that? I'll explain it next. one 888 Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, talking about identity, I have one last uh, story related to this. Washington Post uh, headline. After decades in America, the newly deported return to a Mexico they barely recognize. Okay, So it tells the story of 135 illegal immigrants who were deported from America and were sent back to Mexico City's airport. Now, Check out the quotes from this article. I'm trying to think how to make this more clear. Usually every article about immigration is about immigrants in America, right? This article is about the deported in Mexico and it takes the, it takes a hilarious spin on it. All right. So let me just quote some, um, these are different quotes from the article. Mexico is bracing for an influx of men of men and women like them. Their arrival promises to transform a, a Mexican society. Many of these people come not knowing how to speak Spanish. More returnees means lower wages for everybody. It, this is Washington Post. For everybody in blue-collar industries, such as construction and automobile manufacturing. Moreover, the loss of remittances from the United States, Mexico's second largest source of revenue, $25 billion last year, could have devastating effects, particularly in rural, area, rural areas. And finally, the government's ability to provide such services to the tens of thousands of returning migrants expected in the coming years is uncertain. Okay, this is awesome. So 
when he this is again Washington Post when illegal immigrants come here to America, the left says, "Oh no, no, no. there's no effect on wages. No, none at all. No, not it's actually it's uh, good for the economy." Uh, when immigrants come here to America, illegal immigrants, uh, we say, hey, you know, can people speak? No, no big deal that they don't speak English. Come on. No, let's, what's, what's the problem? They don't need to speak English. We don't need to teach English in schools. It's whatever. It's game on. Whatever language you want. And we're like, hey, you know, we're taking a lot of illegal immigrants here and that's costing a lot on welfare. Oh, no. Come on. Oh, no, there's no effect on welfare here. No effect. There's no effect. Illegal immigrants have no effect on welfare. They can't even sign up for welfare. It's illegal. Hmm. Okay, but when those same illegal immigrants, those same people are sent back to Mexico, now it's, oh, they don't even speak Spanish anymore. Big problem. Big problem. You know, it's really important for everyone to be able to speak the same language in Mexico. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But it's not here. It's not, it's not important that, those, that they speak English here, but it's really important that everyone speaks Spanish there. Right, so once we deport these illegal immigrants back to Mexico, now it's a it's a big problem all of a sudden because oh, it's going to uh, lower wages in blue collar industries. Wait, wait a second, but it doesn't affect wages here. And I love the Washington Post is worried about the drain on welfare in Mexico. They're worried there's going to be too many people deported in Mexico, and they won't have enough money uh, in welfare in Mexico to pay for all this. But when the but illegal immigrants come here, we're like, oh, no, there's no welfare. They're not on welfare, and they don't need welfare. They're hardworking. <laughs> wow. So every reason that conservatives have ever given against illegal immigration, the Washington Post has laughed at. But now they just wrote an article making the exact same points about these immigrants going back to Mexico. And now that's bad for Mexico. What's the difference? The only difference is it's now twisted to fit their agenda. Right now, the whole spin is like, oh, well, we can't be sending these people back to Mexico because it's bad for Mexico. Amazing. Remember a while ago, we talked about the the history of uh, our border uh, and border walls and stuff. And we talked about Eisenhower. Eisenhower was the first president to really crack down. He actually hired a general to uh, to do it, just like Trump has. But at the time, it w- it was the leaders in Mexico who wanted to build a wall. Because too many Mexicans were leaving to go to America, right? So you had capable, hardworking Mexicans were leaving for higher wages and better working conditions in America. So they were leaving their farms and factories behind. So it hurt Mexican productivity to have Mexicans leaving Mexico. So it was Mexicans government that wanted to build a wall to keep people in. Interesting. All right, I'll end here. This is the Washington Post. Uh, an economist, we suffered a cost as a nation. So this is a Mexican economist, I should say. We, so Mexico, Mexico suffered a cost as a nation by sending those hard workers to the U.S. And in that sense, we lost a lot of talent. Okay, that's what we're just talking about there. When they come back to Mexico and they're properly trained, they will make more than a proportional contribution to Mexico. Perfect. Great. Awesome. Let's do it. What's the holdup? Trump needs to make that argument, right? Trump needs to make that argument. He needs to make the argument of, and he kind of does, right? He talks about the wall. Listen, whenever you want to make, whenever you want someone to agree with you or to do what you want to do, 
uh, let's say at work, right? Let's say you have this idea for a project at work. No one's going to do it because you think it's a good idea. You got to get the other person to think it's their idea. And you got to think of it in, in what's their best interest, right? You got to pitch it to them as if it's what they want and let them have the credit and then they'll do it, right? No one's going to do what you want if, and, and then you get the credit. It's not going to happen. So you got to spin it. Um, and this is what Trump has kind of done, right? He says, listen, you know, we want a wall for these reasons, but the wall is also good for Mexico because it'll stop guns from going into Mexico and it'll stop uh, drug money from going back into Mexico, right? So he kind of spins it around in Mexico's, uh, for Mexico's good. And that's smart. But I think Trump should say this. Trump should say, hey, Mexico, let's build a wall. Keep the Mexicans in, the hardworking, wonderful Mexicans that you love so much. Why don't we keep them in Mexico? Because that's better for Mexico. And then here's this Mexican economist saying, hey, it's better to have Mexicans here. We suffered a cost as a nation by sending those hard workers to the United States. So Trump should say, hey, Mexico, let's, let's uh, rectify that problem. Okay, and let's, uh, we'll keep Mexican immigrants uh, in Mexico uh, where they can improve the Mexican economy, right? Isn't that the, the, the smart move? You'd think. 1-888-933-93. I got 90 seconds here. Uh, real quick, it's funny to, again, Washington Post, how they flip like that when it suits their interests. This, though, is the best of the week. January 20th, 2017, New York Times. This is a different topic, but similar theme. Michael S. Schmidt. Headline, front page New York Times. Wiretapped data used an inquiry of Trump aides examining Russian dyes. This is like the day after the election or whatever. So it's talking about wiretapped data, Trump aides, right? All that whole article about it. Front page, March 4th, 2017, after Trump made the accusation that Obama tapped his phone lines, same reporter, same newspaper, Trump offering no evidence says Obama tapped his phones. What? So in January, Michael S. Schmidt and the New York times wrote an article about the wiretapped data used in an inquiry. And then in March, Oh, that's outrageous. No, no evidence has happened. Same guy, same newspaper, different circumstances. What's the connection? It's all about making Trump look bad, right? So in January, it made Trump look bad that he was under investigation. But now saying there's no evidence that this happened makes Trump look bad. So they'll go with that, right? So you see that that, that's the goal. The goal is to make Trump look bad, whatever it takes. All right, I want to come back. Really awesome experiment was done the other day. Uh, switching gender roles of who? I'll tell you who next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. I hope you had a, uh, a good National No Women Day the other Was it Tuesday? Or Get Rid of Women Day or whatever it was called. Can you imagine if a, uh, if a man came up with this idea? Right? Could just, it's the same thing, just... Flip it around. Like, imagine if men sat around, they're like, man, can we just have one day where there's no women around here? Oh, just one. All I want is one. 
That would not. That would never be allowed. But when women are like, we're not going to work. It's some great feminist achievement or something like that. Anyway, uh, who cares? What I want to share with you is, I think, awesome. I, th- I think this is one of the coolest things I've, I've seen all year. And it's a, it's a beautiful way of combining so many things that we've talked about these last, uh, I don't know, two years maybe of the election. And a bunch of people sent me this story and I'm super grateful for it. So uh, a poli, a poli sci and econ professor had the idea to reenact the first presidential debate between President Trump and Hillary Clinton. Right? Reenact the debate. Word for word, gesture for gesture, every facial expression, hand gesture, pacing, tone, everything exactly replicated by two actors. But here's the the spin. Here's the twist. A woman actress playing the part of Donald Trump and a male actor playing the part of Hillary Clinton. So everything's the exact same except switch the genders of each candidate. Awesome. Why? Why do this? Well, her assumption, okay, so the, the director of the play uh, is a uh, progressive who supports Hillary Clinton, hates Donald Trump, right? Her assumption was that Trump won because he was so rude and he was aggressive and all of his interruptions and everything, and that's why Trump won. Uh, but no way would that have worked if Trump were a woman. No way. No way would a woman be able to get away with what Trump did. And Hillary, she lost, obviously because of sexism in America, right? And, and people were critical of her because she's a woman. But clearly, if she was a man, if Hillary Clinton was a man saying the exact same things that she said, then everyone would like her. They only hate her because she's a woman. So she's like, all right, that's my thesis. So I'm going to prove that by switching the roles. Right, so she thought uh, that people would love the male Hillary Clinton, and and equally hate the uh, the woman Trump. Right, so uh, the prof- professor reached out to uh, another professor who specializes in ethnodrama, which is where you take like text of uh, what would be an example, like um, like the like, like Lois and Clark's. Um, like guidebook or, or they're like their notebook, their journal, right? And it's, it's when you act out a journal, basically. Um, so in here, they're, they're acting out the text of the debate. And I can't express literally exact reenactment, body language, pacing, everything precise, spot on. When they rehearsed, they rehearsed to the point where they could put a TV screen behind them and the director would watch the rehearsals and, and see how spot on the actors were in every single thing that they did. Uh, compared to how it happened in real life, of course, except for the genders reversed. So they performed this play in front of two audiences. And each time they gave uh, everyone a questionnaire to fill out before, and then another questionnaire after. And they had an open mic Q&A after as well, which we're going to talk about. But I want to slow down the thesis here, because this can get confusing. I know this is kind of hard to explain over the radio, just it's weird, but hard to imagine. But what do you think would happen? See, this question's not even worth asking to conservatives because let me flip it around. Really just analyze from a progressive's perspective. Now, let me do this. Let me do this. I'm sorry. Let's do it from a conservative. What do you think would happen if you saw female Trump? All right, so everything Donald Trump did, every single way, every exactly, except he was a woman. 
What would you think of the female Donald Trump? I don't think I would think much different. I'll be honest. I don't. I, I wouldn't think much different at all. We, we've talked. Uh, I don't think we've done it on this show, but we've talked about comparisons between Donald Trump and Margaret Thatcher before, right? So, and there's plenty of female politicians that conservatives like. So I don't think it would be a big deal. Now, what would you think of a male Hillary Clinton? Same. I don't think. I, I don't see much difference. But from a progressive, can you see how they would think this would work? Right? Do you see the difference from a progressive? Because progressives, they're, they're, they're angry, right? Because they lost the election. So they're looking for reasons why. And they're like, oh, it's sexism. Right? Hillary lost because she's a woman. And if she was a man, then everyone would love her. Right? So they perform the play. Can I quote from the director? We both thought, as the director and like the producers and stuff, we both thought that the inversion would confirm our liberal assumption that no one would have accepted Trump's behavior from a woman and that the male Clinton would seem like the much stronger candidate. But we kept checking in with each other and realized that this disruption was happening. I had an unsettled feeling the whole way through. We heard a lot of, oh, now I understand how this happened. Meaning how Trump won the election. People got upset. There was a guy two rows in front of me who was literally holding his head in his hands and the person with him was rubbing his back. The simplicity of Trump's message became easier for people to hear when it was coming from a woman. One person said, I'm just so struck by how precise Trump's technique is. Another, a musical theater composer actually, said that Trump created hummable lyrics while Clinton just talked a lot but there was no hook to it. Another theme was about not liking either candidate. Uh, Someone said that John, uh, the the male Hillary Clinton, someone said that the male Hillary Clinton was quote, really punchable because of all her smiling or his smiling, right? All the smiling. And a lot of people were very surprised by the way it upended their expectations about what they thought they would feel or experience. There was someone who described the female Trump, as his Jewish aunt who would take care of him, even though he might not like his aunt. Someone else described her, uh, Trump, as the middle school principal who you don't like, but you know is doing good things for you. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> is it, like, There's so much to unpack here. I love, like all the progressives went there in the audience, right? I mean, obviously they're all Hillary voters stuff, and maybe Bernie supporters, you know, super progressive. They go to this performance. And they're waiting. They want so badly for their liberal assumptions to be true. But instead, they walk away saying, oh, now I understand why this happened. I understand how he won. Why the difference? So when we come to our, when we, it's the way we form conclusions. We form conclusions instantly. Mostly it's inspired by who's on our team, right? Who's our team, right? So I'm on the Democrat team. So I love Hillary. And then you have this, this irrational infatuation with Hillary. You love her no matter what, because she's on your team. And because Trump's on the other team, you have an irrational hatred for him, right? But this play, although an exact reenactment in every way, it was just different enough changing the genders where people, they went into it yeah, they hate Trump, 
but they don't hate the woman playing Trump. I mean, they have no connection to her. And they love Hillary, but they have no connection to the guy playing Hillary. So it's just, I mean, it's just some guy. So they could, it was, it was like they took their biased glasses off, right? They were wearing these glasses throughout the entire election. I love Hillary. I hate Trump wearing it the whole election. And, but during this play, they were able to take it off, right? Take it off. And they were able to see reality beyond their preconceived blind hatred or infatuation. Right, they they put their irrational conclusions away for a second, and they could see reality. Right, and that's why the guy's like, he spoke in hummable lyrics. His technique is precise. Where in the past they thought he was a buffoon, now they can almost see the artistry in it. Right, and we've talked throughout the the whole campaign. We talked about how Trump talks and how the left again thinks he's just an idiot buffoon going out there winging it, and he's not. Right? There's actually a very specific type of rhetoric that Trump uses when he speaks. Um, and it's obviously super effective. And people, once they could put their, take their bias glasses off and they watched it, they got it. Like, oh, wow. And it hit them about how bad Hillary was. Because again, they love, the, oh, I love Hillary. She's amazing. Blah, blah. They see it now. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's awful. One person said, I want to punch her in the face. Right, she's really punchable. Think about that. That is a a Hillary supporting progressive theater goer who's watching. Oh my gosh, I want to punch her or him. Right, Hillary. I want to punch Hillary now. What is she hiding? Why is this actor playing her? Why is he smiling so much? What's he What's he hiding here? <laughs> Which is what we've all said the whole time. It it goes back to her untrustworthiness, right? Wow, I love that experiment. is so stinking interesting. We have um, the story about it on our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. I want to take a break here. I want to play a clip of it. Um, the only clip we have is a clip from the rehearsal of it, but you get the, the point, and it's, you get the premise of it, but it's so interesting to listen to. I will do that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. So, I I, just, I can't. This like blows my mind. This whole thing. Uh, again, they did this play. They exact same thing about the debate. Except switch the genders of Trump and Hillary. I just love the people in the audience. For the first time, they understood what we've been saying. They saw reality. They saw that even as the you know man played Hillary. She's so untrustworthy and she's not likable and she has no messaging. And then Trump played by the woman. They could see, wow, she is actually likable and confident and has a message and a hook. (laughs) Crazy. So I want to play it. This is a little bit of the play. This is the rehearsals. Uh, It's like two minutes. Uh, First of all, it's see if you remember this part of the debate and pay particular attention to if you think the woman who's playing Donald Trump is being rude because that was one of the, uh, the th- part of the thesis of the director who put this together is that, oh, no way would a woman be able to pull, pull off how aggressive and angry uh, Trump was, right? But if a woman did that, she wouldn't get away with it. So really pay attention to if you think this woman is being overly aggressive and rude. All right, here it is. Enjoy. 
We are going to enforce the trade deals that we have, and we're going to hold people accountable. When I was Secretary of State, we actually increased American exports globally 30%. We increased them to China 50%. So I know how to really work to get new jobs and to get exports that help to create more new jobs. But you haven't done it in 30 years, in 26 years. Well, I have been a senator, and I have been a secretary me, of state, and I have done after it a lot. It's one of the worst trade deals to ever happen to well, the manufacturing industry. Well, that is your opinion. That is you your opinion. You go to England, you go to Ohio, Pennsylvania, you go anywhere you want, Secretary Gordon, and you will see devastation where manufacturers down 30, 40, sometimes 50 percent. NAFTA is the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed in this country. And now you want to approve Trans-Pacific Partnership. You were totally in favor of it. Then you heard what I was saying, how bad it is, and you said, I can't win that debate. But you know that if you did win, you would approve that, and that would be almost as bad as NAFTA. Well, Nothing will ever top NAFTA. That, that is just not accurate. I uh, was against it once it was finally negotiated and the terms were laid out. I wrote about that. You called it the gold standard. I wrote about well, you I called hope it the gold standard of trade. And you know what? You said it's the finest deal you've ever seen. No. Then you heard what I was saying, and all of a sudden you were against it. Well, well I know you live in your own reality, Brenda, okay. but that is not the facts. The facts are, I did say I hoped it would be a good deal, but when it was negotiated, not. which I was not responsible for, I concluded it wasn't. I wrote about that in my so book President before Obama's you even Is it President announced. Obama's fault? Look, there are different... Secretary, there, is it President Obama's there fault? Are because he's pushing it. There are different views about what's good for our country, our economy, our leadership in the world. That's why we have to look at how we can get the economy going again. That's why I said new jobs with rising incomes, investments, not in more tax cuts that would add $5 trillion to the debt. But, but you in have no plan. Oh, I do. Secretary, in fact, have no I have plan. written a book about it. It's called Stronger Together. You can pick it up tomorrow at a bookstore or an airport near you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She's terrible. Terrible. Wow. And and it's so funny because you know you knew she was terrible, but you have these progressives who loved her who heard that, which was exactly as she did it. Exactly. And you heard progressives heard that and were like, wow, she's awful. And they had that realization. And that's why the head was in the hands, like, oh my gosh, what did we do? Amazing. Um let me quote one more thing from the director. Uh she says, people across the board were surprised. Uh, that their expectations about what they were going to experience were upended. Many were shocked to find they couldn't seem to find in the male actor what they had admired in Hillary Clinton. Or that the the female actress playing Trump, uh, her clever tactics seemed to shine in moments where they'd remember Donald Trump flailing or lashing out. Wow, that's amazing. So there's something Trump says, and they're back there in the debate, and and those people who hate Trump, they're like, oh, he's he's flailing, he's panicking, he's lashing out, and then they hear the female do it, the actress, and they're like, he's shining. It wasn't even like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought. It's, oh, that was great. <laughs> and then again, the the people who love Hillary uh, at the end wanted to punch her in the face. <laughs> Um, I was surprised by how critical, this is the director, how critical I was seeing Clinton on a man's body. And also by the fact that I didn't find Trump's behavior on a woman to be off-putting at all. I remember turning to Maria, like the co-director, whatever, at one point in my rehearsals and saying, I kind of want to have a beer with her. The majority of my extended family voted for Trump. In some ways, I developed empathy 
for people who voted for him by doing this project. Not what I was expecting. I expected it to make me more angry at them. But it gave me an understanding of what they might have heard or experienced when he spoke. Wow. All right. So that is, uh, I think that's the best example. And we are going to quote that forever. Uh, I think that is the best example I've seen of the lens that we put up, that we filter everything through. Everything. If you went into that debate, the actual debate as a feminist who thinks Trump's a bigot and Hillary is the second coming, there is nothing, there's nothing that would have changed that for you. Nothing. She could do no wrong and he could do no good. But flip the genders, which is really, it's just a way of putting your guard down. Right? It's a way of, of putting your lens down right? and looking at the debate for what it really was. And you say, oh, wow. Like totally different than what I expected. I think that's incredible. Um, there's one last thing that I want to do when we get back about this. And then I want to share a story of Napoleon, which actually fits in pretty nice. So we talk a lot about body language on the show. Uh, Because most of communication is not what you say, it's how you say it, and it's also the body language you have. So the next thing that this, the people who put this on, this play, the next thing they're going to do is to videotape it, the actors, with exactly the same, uh, let me quote, um, my colleague from this other school is especially interested in nonverbal cues, all the unconscious information that gets thrown at us based on physicality, tone of voice, and gesture, but also camera angles, shot length, and size of the lens, so that we can start to get at how all of these nonverbal elements, which are undetectable in real time, contribute to the message that we receive when we watch these things. This has really emerged for us as a tool that could be quite powerful, and I would love for people beyond the liberal academic audience to get to experience it. Yeah, yeah, we, we had a conservative non-academic audience have been analyzing this body language for two years. Welcome to the party. But um, So they're going to do a thing where they have the actual debate and the actors playing it at the same time, like on a video screen. And you can kind of see how you interpret each of them uh, differently. But body language is so important. By far, what most of what we interpret is body language. And we've said from the jump and all the debates, and you remember, if you really want to know who won the debate? Watch it on mute. You're like, how can that be? Watch it on mute. I want to tell a story about the importance of body language. We'll do that coming up next. And then we got a fun Napoleon story, which ties into this all nice. That's our exclamation point. Thanks for being here. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze, Radio Network, Spread the Word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. later on the blaze radio network so uh just to go back to the debate world uh we we said from the jump if you really want to see who won the debate then you got to watch it on mute and it's so funny because it's all about body language it's so counter to everything we've been you know led to believe about communication we think it's so important what we say 
It's not. It's the tone. It's how you say it, and it's that your body language when you say it. So we, I think we think, I think we give too much importance to what is said, and what what you're saying is obviously important, right? I'm not saying it's not. It doesn't matter, but um, I think we we pay so much importance to what is said because we have an overinflated sense of our own rationality, <laughs> right? We think we're so smart, we think we're so logical uh, that that we can. Uh, you know, watch people interact in a debate, but we're only going to pay attention to the words they say because that's uh, that's I'm smart and I own, I'm I'm rational. I'm going to listen and I'm going to pay attention to that. Most of what our brain is interpreting though is body language, All right? So we don't even necessarily know it, but it's what influences our ultimate opinion more than anything. So and over the dec uh, over the decades over the uh, the debates, we've proven this a million times. But I want to give you another example of the power of this. So. Researchers did an experiment where they got some uh, some people to attach about a dozen or so lights, little mini lights, to key parts of their of their body. So they put a, a light on their uh, shoulder and on their elbow and their hand and their hip and their knee and their foot, right, and their head, the top of their head, right. So about a dozen or so lights on these different parts of uh, of their body. And then uh, turn the lights off, turn the lights on, and have the person stand there, and then walk around, and move around, and then dance, right? So they had a bunch of people do these videos where they're lit up like that. Then they'd have people watch these video clips. Now, at first, the person's just standing still. So the per- and the person has no idea like what they're looking at. They're like, oh, it's just a dark, dark, dark screen. Uh, with a couple lights standing there. So the lights are just like random dots. Doesn't even, then the actors would start to move around and people are like, Oh, people, I, I, I get it. Now the question is how much can that person watching this tell about the person in the video just by the moving lights? Remember it's pitch black. All they see are lights. They don't see faces. They don't see hair. They don't see the clothes they're wearing. It's just dark with lights. Right, a couple lights, just little like little tiny Christmas lights. Right, the people the, who watching the video, they could tell the person's gender just based on the lights. That's it. They could tell their gender. Uh, when dancers were the people, you know, put the lights on them, and they they you know dance as if you're sad or dance happy, dance angry. The people watching the video could determine the emotions that were being portrayed. (laughs) And in some cases, what they did is they would have, uh, like let's say they'd have your brother dress up with the lights and you'd be watching it and they'd say, who does this this person remind you of? And people could say, my brother? (laughs) They'd be like, huh? They could tell who the person was by the gate of their walk. Right, so this is so crazy. When you, all the people you know, all the people you work with, describe them, right? And everyone would describe their hair color, right? Things like that. Height, whatever. But your brain also is analyzing how they walk to the point where if the person was walking in the dark and just had these lights on, you can be like, oh, there's Charlie. 
We don't know that we know that, right? But our brains file away that information the way that someone walks. And our brains can tell who that person is. That's crazy. This is the power of what we see and how it's far more powerful than what we hear. And this is why Trump's power moves during the debate were so important. You know, people mocked Trump. Uh, It was the second debate when they were walking around, right? The town hall debate. Uh, They weren't just behind the podium. People mocked Trump for, we called Trump the the warrior alpha male from the beginning. Uh, People mocked Trump for the way he walked around, the way he stood behind Hillary. You think that was by accident? He was always in the camera angle, luring over her. That was all power. That was all power moves. And people knew that. They watched. They saw. They could see it. And deep down, that said leadership. It said strength. It said power. And that's what people were voting for with Trump. Really interesting. All right, I'm going to take a break here. Uh, I'll come back with a little story about uh, Napoleon that I think can tie this together uh, nicely. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Funny. Uh, so I'm going to bring this all back together, I promise, but I want to share two stories real quick. Um, the women's strike or whatever that was. So that the, the wife of the prime minister of Canada posted a picture on her Instagram account uh, that is uh, getting a bunch of fake virtue signaling outrage against her. So it's a picture of the two of them holding hands and gazing lovingly into each other's eyes. And she wrote this. She said, are you ready to ignite change? By the way, if you ever read that, just stop reading. There's no, <laughs> nothing productive follows this. That is so super blowhardy. Are you ready to ignite change? This week, as we mark International Women's Day, let's celebrate the boys and men in our lives who encourage us to be who we truly are, who treat girls and women with respect and who aren't afraid to speak up in front of others. Take a picture holding hands with your male ally, and share it on social media with the hashtag tomorrow in hand. Together, we can create a movement that inspires more men to join the fight to build a better tomorrow with equality rights and opportunities for everyone because hashtag equality matters. I'll tell you, if my wife ever calls me her male ally, that is, uh, we have to have a chat about that. <laughs> okay. Uh, so super again, meaningless and, and blowhardy. Um, put a bunch of fake outrage about it. I'm not outraged by it. It's stupid. Uh, here's the first comment. I'll just read this one so you get the idea. Like, OMG, if I hold my nice boy's hand, maybe the rapists and pimps and frat boys and abusers and harassers will learn to be nice so they can hold my hand too. Real change comes through policy and education of how much women matter. Real change comes through protest and standing with other women. Stop silencing women. Another one says, I don't know if you can ever come back from this publicity fail in the eyes of young women in Canada. OMG. Again. Okay, so that's story number one. Remember that one. We'll get back to it. Another story. Ben Carson, the other day, you heard this one. He said, um, he was talking at the 
Department of uh, whatever he is, Housing and Urban Development. And he said, uh, you know, there's, there's immigrants who came at the bottom of slave ships. I got the quote here, actually. Uh, there are other immigrants who came at the bottom of slave ships who worked even longer, even harder for less. But they too had a dream that one day their sons, daughters, grandsons, blah, 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 might pursue prosperity and happiness in this land. And people flipped, totally flipped out. Oh, what a disgrace. Trevor Noah did a segment on it. Ooh. Samuel L. Jackson tweeted out a couple cuss words and everyone just piled on. This was, I don't know, like Monday or something. Less than 24 hours later, the Federalist website, federalist.com, put out a list of the 11 times, 11 times that Barack Obama referred to slaves as immigrants. 11. Like this one. Certainly, it wasn't easy for those of African heritage who had not come here voluntarily and yet in their own way were immigrants themselves. There was discrimination and hardship and poverty. But like you, they no doubt found inspiration in all those who had come before them, and they were able to muster faith that here in America they might build a better life and give the children something more, their children something more. Like, I feel like if you criticize Ben Carson for anything for what he said in his speech, it would be for plagiarizing President Obama. Like that, that's the same sentiment. Slaves came over as immigrants, worked, had a horrible life dreamed for more for their children. I mean, that's not that that's a super original thought, but that's kind of the point. That was Obama in 2015, by the way. So the writer from The Federalist, he says that he has a 24-hour rule for uh, shootings and other mass casualty events, right? Because you get, a, you get a real, like everyone's freaking out. You get a lot of speculation and everyone gets really sloppy in the media. Just gotta be the first. So he has a 24-hour rule when it comes to anything any, like, like reporting beyond just the very basics that we do know and certainly on any uh, like conclusions like analysis on the right 24 hours just wait 24 hours until we know much more and then we can have a real conversation so he says he's starting a 24 hour rule for Trump related news too because how many times does the outrage media just need to, to, to just tweet stuff out and write articles and then come back and be like, ah, oh, never mind. My all-time favorite was, it was, I think it was Inauguration Day, when the reporter from Time Magazine, so this isn't just some hack, this is Time Magazine, says, oh my gosh, it's unbelievable. Donald Trump eliminated the bust of Martin Luther King Jr. from the White House. Got rid of the bust of MLK Jr. And then a couple hours later, he's like, ah, oh, never mind. Someone was just standing in front of it. I didn't see it. <laughs> what? How could you have jumped to that conclusion? That's amazing. So what's the connection here? So you have this uh, feminist outrage at the uh, just the vapidness from the prime minister's wife, but still outraged at her nonetheless. And then you have people breathlessly outraged over something Ben Carson said when Barack Obama said the exact same thing. So what does all this have in common? It comes from, and again, this is my favorite term. You're, you're going to hear this a lot. It comes from people who are in total freefall. Trump said that about Whoopi Goldberg couple years ago she's in total free fall i love that imagery these this outrage comes from people completely out of control totally out of control their emotions rule their behavior their emotions rule over them i came across this quote from napoleon bonaparte i almost said dynamite napoleon bonaparte he said the first quality of a general-in-chief 
is to have a cool head which receives exact impressions of things which never gets heated which never allows itself to be dazzled or intoxicated by good news or bad news right so so if you're in the media or whoever keep a cool head you you look at the exact impressions of things reality you never get heated you never lose yourself you never allow yourself to be dazzled or intoxicated by anything you stay calm the successive simultaneous sensations which he receives in the course of a day must be classified like in his brain and must occupy the correct places they merit to fill because common sense and reason are the result of the comparison of a number of sensations, each equally well considered, right? So it's, listen, you're going to get a bunch of stuff at you all the time. And in our 24 media news cycle, right? You're just constantly bombarded with information, a successive simultaneous sensations, right? You're going to get it all day long. So you got to be able to have a clear head so you can look at that and classify it in the right place in your brain that it deserves to be in and nothing more. Right, Common sense and reason are the result of the comparison of a number of sensations equally well considered. So you look at it, you're like, okay, what's worth getting outraged about? What's not? Last part. There are certain men who, on account of their moral and physical constitution, paint mental pictures out of everything. Right, We say that all the time about making pictures in our brain. However exalted by their reason, their will, their courage, and whatever good qualities they may possess, nature has not fitted them to command armies. And not to direct great operations of war, right? So we receive successive simultaneous sensations in every aspect of our life, our marriage, parenting, work, right? Just stuff coming at you, politics, bombarded with sensations. And Napoleon says each of these have to occupy the correct places in our brain. And some people can't do this. And no matter how good of people they are, they're just not fit to do important things. You can't get heated. You can't get heated, dazzled, intoxicated, by everything all the time. Got to keep a cool head. You got to look at the exact impression of things. The media doesn't receive the exact impression of things. People reading the prime minister's wife's tweets and Ben Carson's comments, they're not looking at the exact impression of things. They're looking to be intoxicated by rage. And people who do that, who can't remain calm and can't classify things properly, they're not fit to command armies. They're not fit to report the news. They're not fit to do anything of influence. So rid this from your life. Rid people who are not fit to do these things. Because then they're just going to intoxicate you and they're going to dowse you and they're going to... That's why I like the total freefall imagery because... People who are in total free fall, they try to grab on to something. And if that something's you, they're going to drag you down. So I was a lifeguard growing up. Lifeguard, you're taught if someone's drowning, you don't just go get them uh, without something like a flotation device. Because if someone's frantic and you go and you get near them, they're going to drown you. They're desperate, they're frantic, and they will pull you under and they will never let you go and you will die. Right? So that's the media and everyone, all these politicians, everyone, they're drowning right now. And if you get close to them, they're going to pull you down with them. So don't. Stay here near the blaze, right? Where cooler heads can prevail. 1-800-988-933-93. Mike Slater, so the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. 
part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Only one more hour. What the heck? All right, we'll make it a good one. So uh, I want to play this clip here. This is Jorge Ramos from Univision on with uh, Tucker Carlson. So let's listen to it. We'll unpack it all. Several weeks ago in February, you said this, and I wanted to ask you about it, and I, I'm quoting you. I'm sure. a proud Latino immigrant here in the United States. You know exactly what is going on here in the U.S. There are many people who do not want us to be here and who want to create a wall in order to separate us. But you know what? This is also our country. Let me repeat mm-hmm. this. Our country, not theirs. It's our country. Who's the us and the who's the they? Whose country is it? Uh, this is our country. It is yours. It is mine. And it is ours. The interesting thing is that um, with the Trump administration and many people who support Donald Trump, they think it is their country, that it is a white country, and they are absolutely wrong. This is not a white country. This is not their country. It is, it is ours, and that's precisely what I'm saying. Look, in 2044, this country, the white population will become uh, a minority. It will be a minority, majority country. That's precisely what I'm saying. Latinos. Asians, African-Americans, whites, it is our country, Tucker. Right. Yeah. Well, let me just point out that you are white, obviously. You have blue, you have blue, you're whiter than I am. You've got blue eyes. So, I mean, I don't know exactly what you mean by white or Latino. But let me just ask you again to explain our country, not theirs. Who is they? Whose country is it not? Well, many people who want to go back to 1965 when there was um, a white majority. Many people who believe that Latinos and immigrants and refugees shouldn't be here. That's precisely what I was referring to. I, so it's not their the, country? Before the election, belong to before, those people? What are you saying? Well, it's also, it's also their country, but it's not only their country. Right. We have okay. to understand that this is a multicultural, multiracial country, and, um, and we have to live and be tolerant. And that's exactly what I was right. referring well, to. I def- it is well, I our certainly country. agree with, I agree with that. Country. Now, I, would, I, you know, I don't want to bring this to race. You did, so I'm going to follow up on that. You have posited yourself as the leader of Latinos, and I'm not exactly sure what that word means. So Latinos seem to encompass, I don't know, German Guatemalans and Italian Argentines and Afro-Cubans and non-Spanish-speaking Peruvians and, I don't know, blue-eyed rich Mexicans like you. What do those groups have in common exactly? Well, what, what we have in common is that mostly that we come from a, a region in, in the world, Latin America, and right. there are many differences. Uh, many people call them Latinos, many people call them Hispanics. Uh, we tend to speak more Spanish at home uh, than others. Uh, we have not only well, hundreds, but Portuguese, thousands of obviously. mass media in our own language, in, in contrast with what happened with uh, Italians or Europeans before us. So in other words, it's a uh, a kind of immigration that has a distinct characteristics that others didn't have before. But what is distinct, again, just to be totally clear, if, if I am a non-Spanish speaking Brazilian, I speak Portuguese, yeah. I'm a non-Spanish speaking Peruvian, I'm 100% German, but I live in Guatemala, and there are a lot of them there, as you know, there are also a lot of 100% Italian people in Argentina, there are a lot of African uh, American, African Latin American Cubans. 
what do they have in common? They, a lot of them don't like each other. They don't speak the same language. They have very different cultures. It, I don't no, understand no, why they're under it, one It's heading. not really that complicated. It's, it's simply a, a matter of a country of origin, either for, for you or for your family. Again, most of us speak Spanish. Most of us come from Latin America. About half the Latino population, um, adult uh, Latino population, um, are immigrants. So that's what differentiates us from, from other groups. But mostly it has to do with the country of origin. That's okay. Right. It still doesn't make any sense to me at all. But as a political matter, it makes a lot yeah, of sense it because is. it allows people like you to say, I represent everybody on an entire continent when clearly that's not true. All right. Really, really good conversation there at the end. All right. So let's let's talk about race here for a little bit. Race is not a biological concept or, or it applies to humans. Um, there's this really big misconception that race is some sort of scientific phenomenon. Uh, it is a social construct only. It is a social concept only. And it is now, as uh, Tucker alluded to at the end, it's a political concept. There is only one human race. And, and I don't mean that as some like mm, kumbaya, let's sing around the campfire thing. I, I mean that scientifically, there is one human race. The DNA of any two human beings is 99.9% identical. We all share the exact same set of genes. There is a single biological human race. Race differences, the differences in races in America or in the world today, it's a myth, a total myth, doesn't exist. Race is a myth. Racial differences are a myth. It's totally, completely made up. And I'm going to tell you where it came from here in just a second. But... Just for a little clarification, in chimpanzees, there are three different races. There are three different races of chimpanzees. There's only one race of human. That's it. I want to quote here. This is Guy Harrison. He's an atheist writer. He said, one day in the 1980s, I sat in the front row in my first undergraduate anthropology class. Eager to learn more about this bizarre and fascinating species that I was uh, born into. But I got more than I expected that day as I heard for the first time that biological races are not real. After hearing several perfectly sensible reasons why vast biological categories don't work very well, I started to feel betrayed by my society. Why am I just hearing this now? Why didn't somebody tell me this in elementary school? I never should have made it through 12 years of schooling before entering university without ever hearing the important news that most anthropologists reject the concept of biological races. <laughs> what people mean to say probably is ethnicity. So ethnicity are different cultural factors that make up your life. So it's the, 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 where you live, your religion, languages you speak, whatever. And of course there are different ethnicities, uh, but there are no different races. Now, if you've never heard this before, it's going to take a while to let, to let this sit in because you're going to feel like that guy. You're going to feel lied to. You're going to be, feel betrayed by your entire society that has taught you that race is a thing. Why? Why did they tell you race is a thing? Because y you, you can't have racism unless there are different races. Are you with me? Racism can only exist if people think there are different races. 
if we taught kids that there's one race, scientifically one race, because it's true, then they wouldn't be as inclined to separate people based on race because there is only one. Now, I got a ton to say here. Please stay with me because we got a ton to go over with this. You know what I'm saying is true. Everyone does. Because listen to this conversation again between Tucker and and Jorge Ramos. Ramos is obsessed with race, right? Like, Like Latino. So Hispanic just means people who come from a country that speaks Spanish. That's all that means. So Hispanic, I mean, if you're Spanish from Spain, or Cuba, you're Hispanic, right? It's, it's, that doesn't mean it. That's just language. But Latinos, right? Like the Latino race. But as Tucker rightfully highlights, even if you're a German Guatemalan or an Italian Argentinian or non-Spanish-speaking Peruvian or white Jorge Ramos, you know the last president of Mexico is Vicente Fox, right? You know the name Vicente Fox? His grandfather, Vincente Fox, former president of Mexico, his grandfather was born in Ohio to German Catholic immigrants. The the family name is Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S. They changed it to Fox. (laughs) See how stupid this is? See how stupid this is? That's the president of Mexico, a white guy. He's a white guy. He's German. And he's talking about different races? Give me a break. We're all the same race. So why doesn't Jorge Ramos talk about different ethnicities? Because there's too many. There's too many ethnicities to group into one giant category, right? But when you use these terms like Hispanics, right? That, that's this huge group of people. And Latinos it encompasses this, a ton of people that the left can put into one group and manipulate accordingly. Right, And they can claim to speak on behalf of all Hispanics. But as Tucker's saying, what does a Cuban person have in common politically with someone from Argentina? Nothing. But they both speak Spanish? Who cares? Okay, fine. What about the Cuban with the Brazilian? They speak different languages. What do they have in common? They're all Hispanic. Or I guess they're not. They're all Latino. Like It's so stupid. Ethnically, they're different. Their cultures are different. Maybe religion is different. Whatever. But they're all the same race. Now, our point is when a Cuban or a Brazilian or an Argentinian or whatever immigrates to America, we want them to assimilate to the American culture. But this has nothing to do with race. I'm so sick of this garbage. It has nothing at all to do with race. Race doesn't even exist. It doesn't exist. I'm not, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying, uh, oh, you know, we should uh, ignore race or look past it or be colorblind. I'm telling you, there's no such thing. So where did it come from? I'll tell you next. It's a relatively new idea. It started in the 18th century. Think about this. Race, as we know today, started in the 18th century. That's it. And and, and it's a total scam. I'm going to tell you where race came from, and you're going to look at this and say, oh my gosh, how can we still have a, a social construct around this concept that is total garbage? Absolute total garbage. Well, it makes perfect sense. Again, you can't have racism if there aren't different races. So the people who are race baiters, they will always keep this lie alive that different races exist. But there's no such thing. All right, we'll tell you where this came from next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater. So race is a uh, a new concept, relatively new concept. So it was invented in the 18th century. Uh, there's nothing scientific about it, which is just kind of interesting because the progressives who who profit politically from the idea of race uh, also claim to be the people of science. There is nothing scientific or biological about race whatsoever. So the idea of race came out of uh, slavery in Africa. Now, there was we've talked about this a million times. There's plenty of slavery before the African slave trade. Right? Since the beginning of time, there's been slavery. Uh, the first people to, inst- uh, for the uh, English, the first people that the English enslaved around the 13th century were the Irish. So the Irish worked on their plantations. Think about this. The slaves on the English plantations of Barbados and Jamaica were Irish and Indian. So imagine this, right? You have, you have Jamaica full of black people. The English come in, take it over. Now they run the show and the, the plantations are run by Irish people and Indians. So the black people are just living their life. The British people are running the show and you got Irish and Indian slaves. What? I mean, this is so crazy for us to understand. But until around the 18th century, the image of Africans was a, a positive one. They were, they were great farmers. They were seen as great farmers and excelled in the arts and culture and warfare. Um, right? So, so it was like, oh, the Africans, they're thriving and it's great. But around the 18th century, there was a need for more slaves. So the British turned to the African people and basically made up this PR campaign that the Africans are backwards lost souls and it's the Christian duty of the white man to save them, right? So then they, because they came up with this this concept, like we need to now enslave the Africans. So how can we do this? So they had this fake science started popping up about how Africans are inferior. They're the inferior race, right? They had to make Africans other, they had to make them a separate race. No one ever looked at it this way before. There's no, there were no such thing. There were different cultures, right? Like we talked earlier about the Persians and the Greeks, that like they hated each other, of course, right? But it wasn't because the Persians are a different race than we are. There was no concept of that. So this was all done to justify slavery. People had to come up with a racial hierarchy. This never existed before. Samuel Morton was one of the leading scientists on race. So early 1800s, what he did is he collected a bunch of skulls from people all around the world. This is such an important story because we have so much of our societies built up on the concept of different races. But once you know, not only the, like the ideology behind it, like why it was come up, but the science behind it, the pseudo fake science behind it, you're like, what the heck are we doing? So he got hundreds of skulls from American Indians and he got 50 skulls from black people and 50 skulls from white people. And Sam Morton compared the size of the skulls, found that the skulls from the white people were bigger, which means white people have bigger brains, which means white people are smarter and superior to all the other races. Done. That's it. (laughs) That makes sense. Do you see how stupid that is? See how stupid that is? What he did is he, he filled the skulls with mustard seed, right, which is the smallest of all the seeds. And then he, he filled the skull up and then poured it all out into a, a graduated cylinder to see which skull had the more volume. 
That's it. Oh, it's okay. White people's skulls bigger, therefore bigger brains, therefore smarter. What the heck? Now, not only is that terribly not precise, but he never accounted for the difference in the size of the people, right? So the American Indians, Native Americans, who he whose skulls he measured, were generally just smaller people, right? So the shorter you are, the smaller you are, the smaller your skull size is going to be. But that doesn't mean you're dumber. <laughs> doesn't mean your brain's smaller, which means you're dumber. How stupid! Women have smaller skulls than men. But proportional to a woman's body size, women's brains are bigger than men's. But that has nothing to do with how intelligent you are or not. It's totally irrelevant. So why do they think that? Why do they think that brain size makes a difference how smart you are? The bigger the brain, the smarter you are. Because Western culture, bigger is better. Right? Bigger houses, bigger cars, bigger everything. Bigger brains, smarter. There you go. Race. That's where race came from. White people have bigger brains because their skull's bigger than black people. Therefore, we're different races. See how stupid. So there you go. That's racist. No scientific backing whatsoever. Not at all. Now, I got a minute here. Let's talk about the word Caucasian. So the skulls, there were other researchers that did this, did this too, not just Samuel Morton, but the skulls that researchers used for white people were from the... Uh, Caucasus Mountain region, like Eastern Europe-ish, right? The Caucasus Mountains. So if you, li- this is what they did. They lined up the skulls of different people, right? So there's a, a skull of a white person from the Caucasus Mountain region. There's a skull of a black person and an, and an Asian person and a Native American. And they lined them up and they said, which skull is the most beautiful? I'm not even kidding. They said, which skull is the most beautiful of the skulls? And the scientist said, oh, it's obvious. It's obvious. This is the skull of the, the white man. I'm not kidding. So that's why we're called Caucasian. That's why white people are called Caucasian. Because the skulls that they used in this stupid study, not even a study, are from the Caucasus Mountain region. Like White people aren't from the Caucasus Mountain region. These skulls were from people in the Caucasus <laughs> So this was all before genetics. So now we know there's no such thing as different races. There's just one human race. So it's a social construct. It's a political construct. And the people who profit off of it are sick. And they profit off of it. Not only that, but they profit off of this science. Science, right? They profit off this. They, they're, they're the perpetrators. The perpetrators. Per, what's not the, that's not the right word. They're the, they're the people who continue. There's a P word there. Anyway, they're the people who continue that same science. The the conclusion from these fake scientists 200 years ago is being continued by the Jesse Jacksons of today. You would think that they would go to reject this science. Science. Not real science. I hope you can see my air quotes. That you think they would be rejecting this and saying, well, people, there's no such thing as racist. But no, they need there to be different races so that then they can profit off of racism or fighting racism but they don't really want to solve it at all amazing 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 1-888-933-93 please spread that word there's no scientific difference in human races doesn't exist this is mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network
Mike Slater. Slater for Slater. Um, I'm going to share a story here. So, you know, we talk on the show a lot about the uh, city versus country divide. That's the that's the cultural divide in our country. And we've read from um, uh, it was last week or two weeks ago, we talked about uh, Vegetius. He was a Roman writer around the 400 or so. And he said, when you make an army, uh, well, this is what he said. He said, quote, from the country, the main strength of the army should be supplied. They're nurtured under the open sky in a life of work, enduring the sun, careless of shade, unacquainted with bathhouses. I love that one. That's my favorite part. They've never even been to the spa. Ignorant of luxury, simple souls, content with a little, with limbs toughened to endure every kind of toil, and for whom digging a ditch and carrying a burden is what they are used to. All right, so you're 400. It's a, 1,600 years ago, they say, oh, yeah, country. You need, you need people from the country. And still today, most of our military is people from the country. Um, so I came across a story the other day. This is written by William McDougall. He was a psychologist in the uh, early 1900s. He was one of the first to write about instinct. But he, he wrote about um, Borneo. So Borneo is the third largest island in the world. And I'm not going to pretend like I, I would have known where that was until I looked it up. I'm not, not proud of that. Uh, if, you say, if you told me Borneo, I'd be like, uh, Africa? Like, I have no, no clue. So it's third largest island in the world. It's tucked right there with the Philippines and Indonesia, kind of in that neck of the woods. He said, if you travel up any of the, the, the rivers in Borneo, you're going to meet tribes on the coast. And then, you know, as you go deeper, like another mile in, you're going to meet another tribe. And then another mile, you're going to have another tribe. And you're going to keep going inland and you're going to get more and more tribes. And he says the tribes are more warlike the deeper inland you go, right? So the coastal tribes are very peaceful and they never fight except for self-defense and then they almost never win. But the deeper you go, ooh, it's game on. More dangerous and more dangerous. So just sit on that fact for a second. So in our society today, which tribe do you think most people would join? Based on today's American culture, which which tribe? Let's just pick let's pick two. Let's pick the one on the coast and then one ten miles inland up the river. Very warlike. Which which coast which tribe do you think people would pick? I think most people would take the coastal tribe. More peaceful. Probably means they're nicer. Friendlier. Better people. Right? Oh, they're not like those backwards inland hicks. <laughs> I think most Democrats would want to be on that tribe. Sounds safer and nicer. So here's McDougal. He says, though it be supposed that the peaceful coast people would be found to be superior in moral qualities to their more warlike neighbors, the contrary is the case. Right? So, so he's like, listen, you would think that the people on the coast would, would have higher morals because the people in them are so warlike. So you'd think the people on the coast are better people. But he says, no, it's the opposite. He says, in almost all respects, the advantage lies with the warlike tribes. Their houses are better built, larger, and cleaner. Their domestic morality is superior. They're better husbands and wives, better parents. They're physically stronger and braver, and physically and mentally more active, and in general, more trustworthy. 
But above all, their social organization is firmer and more efficient. Because their respect for and obedience to their chiefs and their loyalty to their community are much greater. Each man identifies himself with the whole community and accepts and loyally performs the social duties laid upon him. That's interesting, right? So the, it's the people in this Borneo, or Borneo tribe, it's the people inland. Yeah, they're more warlike, but they have stronger morals in, in every way. Better husbands, wives, parents. They're more brave, more trustworthy, more loyal, more respect for each other. That's incredible. Than, than, than the people on the coast. Isn't it crazy that today in America, what's the divide? It's the coasts. It's the coast versus inland. Where are all the Democrats? Democrats are all on the coast. Look at the coastal maps, right? It's all blue on the coast. But inland, that's where the conservatives are. That's more red. That's also, to go back to Vigetius, that's where most of our military comes from. People who, from, who are from that part of the country. I mean, we're, we're the opposite sides of the planet. And this is still true. American culture today and Bor- Borneo culture a hundred years ago, coast versus inland, city versus country. Why, why, why? What's the difference? There's a lot, but I came across a meme the other day, uh, which I like. It says, hard is four panels. The top panel is hard times create strong men. And it was a picture of the men of Iwo Jima raising the flag. Right. Hard times create strong men, World War II vets. And then strong men create good times. And had a picture of these World War II vets coming back home, working hard, all the rest. Then it starts to flip. Well, then it's, well, good times create weak men. And it shows protesters whining about whatever, being entitled and all that. And then weak men create hard times. And then it goes back around. Hard times create strong men. So the question is, where are we right now? Uh, I think we're somewhere between good times create weak men, right? Because we definitely live in way, way too much prosperity. Good times create weak men. And then, you know, weak men create hard times. Like we're somewhere there. But it's a cycle that keeps going all the way around. So to go back to the, the tribe in Borneo, the, the men inside, inland, the tribes inland, hard times. Not even just warlike, but everything, you know, it's harder. Like life's harder inland. That creates strong men. Not more violent men. More morally strong men. The, the more parents I talk to, especially those raising sons like I am, the biggest fear they have, and I'm not kidding, the biggest fear they have is that uh, times are too good. Things are too good. They make too much money. Too many creature comforts. Things are too easy for them. Or they're afraid things are going to be too easy for their kids. So the question is, how do we raise kids in our culture today? Which, good times because of strong men. 
right? But we're riding their coattails. So how do we raise kids to be stronger, braver, more trustworthy, more moral, loyal people like the Bornean tribes? It's harder to do that in good times than bad. So I, I, I don't I take whatever you want from it, but I just think it's wildly interesting that if you look at America today, I think you would say very similar things, right? You compare people on the coast to someone in Kentucky, very different. And it's the same thing in uh, Borneo hundred years ago, compare someone on the coast with inland and they're very different in very similar ways. Wow. That's crazy. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. So on that point about uh, how to raise kids in a prosperous society, I'm reading a book about John D. Rockefeller. So he grew up second of six. His dad was a bigamist. He had a see at a different family in another town. Isn't that crazy and total con man. He would he would go town to town selling magical elixirs to cure cancer. Um, so a total con artist and he was almost never home. So it was John D that's what they call him, John D John D's, uh, mom taught him to be thrifty and save money, but he had a very, uh, low middle-class upbringing. It wasn't you know, totally poverty stricken, but, um, certainly not what I mean, it was by today's standards, but nothing, um, nothing right home about. So fast forward a few years, you got standard oil taking off. He's pretty rich. So John D has four kids. Um, so what did he do first? He never it's like, how did he, how did he keep his kids? How do you keep their heads on straight? So he never had his kids come to his office or refineries growing up. And at home, he created a make-believe economy. So they, the kids would get two cents for killing flies and five cents for sharpening pencils and two cents for not eating candy every day. And uh, every 10 weeds you pull, you get a penny, stuff like that. So he taught them the connection between work and money. Because if he didn't do that, then they would just have all the money and they wouldn't get that you have to actually work for it. And his wife was the same. They, they, they both were in on this. So John D, he wanted to buy his kids bicycles one day. And his wife said, uh, okay, but only one. And John D Rockefeller was like, whoa, whoa, I mean, we can, I mean, they're not that expensive. We can definitely buy four. And uh, he's like, no, 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 we need one so that they'll learn how to share. So John D Rockefeller actually raised his kids to live a life of material comfort about the same as he did. His daughters wore hand-me-down dresses. So I just think that's super interesting. Like he got it. He understood. Now I'm going to be fair. I'm only in the part of the book where like right now he's starting to super take off and move to New York. And it's like, but he was, he was definitely multimillionaire uh, at the time he was raising his younger kids. So maybe things changed as he got older. I don't know yet, but at least that's part of the story. He understood the, the importance of making sure his kids had uh, their head on. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, everyone thinks that if they have more money, all their problems are going to be solved. Right. My life's going to be better. My kids' lives are going to be better. Mm, maybe. 
But in some ways, maybe not. Because I know there's a lot of wealthy parents who wish their kids didn't have the problems that can come from that life. I got a couple of minutes here. I read a, uh, a funny blog post from uh, Nassim Taleb. His thesis, thesis is that when people get rich, they lose control of their own preferences. It's pretty cool, right? So like, a pretty interesting thought. So uh, rich people actually stop doing what they want to do and start doing things that they feel pressured to do. And he says he went to a, a dinner at a Michelin starred restaurant with someone uh, and he really wanted to go to this Greek place down the street. That's like, you know, $8 or whatever, but they had to go to this Michelin restaurant that was $200. Uh, and he said, this is what he wrote. He said, dinner consisted of a succession of complicated small things <laughs> with microscopic ingredients and contrasting tastes that forced you to concentrate as if you were taking some type of exam. You were not eating Rather, visiting some type of museum with an affected English major lecturing you on some artistic dimension that you would have never considered on your own. Once something on the occasion tasted like something real, there was no chance to have more as we moved on to the next dish. Trudging through the dishes and listening to some blank by the sommelier about the paired wine, I was afraid of losing concentration. It cost a lot of energy to fake that I was not bored. In fact, I discovered an optimization in the wrong place. The only thing I cared about, bread, was not warm. It appears that this is not a Michelin requirement. <laughs> so why do we have places like this? Right? These, these, have you ever been to one of those restaurants? It's like five-star restaurants, like super, super, super nice. Um, I have. It was a total joke. I went to one in Mexico. We stayed in an all-inclusive place, right? So the food was good. But then they had a restaurant there that you had to pay for, but it was like a Michelin restaurant. And uh, it wasn't too expensive, but we got slammed on water. They charged us. I'm not even kidding. It was like 80 bucks for water. Cause we got like two bottled waters or something. It's like, what? What the heck is this? I freaked out on them. Um, so why do we have places like this? Because some people can, and those people do it not because it's good, but because you can. So his theory is that he would much rather have a $5 pizza than a $200 dinner. He calls it a French complicated experience. <laughs> Right? He'd rather have the $5 pizza. But the, the snotty rich person, if the French dinner was $5 and the pizza was $200, he thinks they'd choose the pizza. Because it's not about the food, it's about the exclusivity of it. Right, It's about, can, can I do it while other people can't? Good, that means it's of higher value, like social value. So I'm going to choose the more expensive thing. Not because it's better, but simply because it's more expensive. And he says it's the same with houses too, right? People are happier living in smaller homes closer to each other, more of a community feel and all that. But when you get a lot of money, there's this pressure to live in a giant impersonal mansion where your neighbors are nowhere to be seen. And then you get super rich and then you need a staff. And then it's like you're running a corporation and it's not a home. It's like an office building or something, right? It's like devoid of human warmth in it. Like, what are we doing? Like, so Rockefeller, he lived on, a, it's called Millionaire's Row. So he had, it was a big house, but it was the smallest of all of them. And he never lived in a super big house because he didn't, he didn't want to flaunt his wealth. He didn't, he didn't want, and it was kind of like, it wasn't like, oh, I don't, I'm a good person. I don't want to flaunt it. It was more, I don't want people really to know how much money I'm making. So I'm just not gonna buy the biggest house I can possibly 
by. He was actually, he was in Cleveland and uh, someone said, hey, who lives in that giant house? And he's like, oh, that's the guy who makes the barrels for my oil. Wow, he does live in a big house. He went back, looked at how much profit the guy, the barrel making guy was getting, canceled all of his contracts and hired someone else. <laughs> so that's why Rockefeller always kept a low profile. He never wanted to show off his wealth. Interesting. All right, Slider Crusaders. Appreciate you being here. We'll see you next Saturday. We'll do it again. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.